Healthcare for children is not all created equal. It requires a specific specialization to care for children, one in which not all communities have. But Dr. Alana Arnold is doing her best to change that, especially here in the South Florida community. This conversation is all about health equity and also health education, especially in high-risk communities for children. Our physical, mental, and emotional health is not just a want, it is a need for happy lives and prosperous businesses. Lift You Up is the podcast where we share inspiring health stories from business owners who are fulfilling their purpose to live their healthiest lives and helping you do the same. From former TV reporter to marketing entrepreneur and content creator, I care about sharing stories that matter and stories that connect us. I'm your host, Tamika Bickham, your health and wellness matchmaker. Today, I am so excited to meet virtually and welcome to the show, Dr. Alana Arnold from Premier Pediatric Solutions. Thank you so much for having me, Tamika. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure and honor. So I am currently based in Miami. Um, I'm originally from Philadelphia. I've been uh, in Miami for just about two and a half years so far. So still learning the area, but enjoying uh, the weather for sure and, and uh, having, having a good time. Before we dive into more of your work in the community and what you're doing with your business and some of the um, areas that you want to uh, bring more awareness to, tell me a little bit about your story and how you got into this line of work. Is it something you always knew you wanted to do? I wanted to find a career where I could um, you know, use my mind, meet all types of people, and also do something that was, in my eyes, like productive and helpful just to, to society in general. So I thought um, being a doctor would be a good route because you, um, you know, universal um, in terms of healthcare and everyone wants to be in good health and um, good standing in that regard. So I figured it would be great uh, to go that route. Um, so I went about my business, was was pre-med in college and, and went actually kind of straight through from college into medical school and then my pediatrics training. When I was in medical school, I figured out very quickly I did not want to be in a specialty where I was on call. I like my life too much for that. I liked, um, you know, travel and being social. And so ER mm -hmm. kind of fit into that area. And when I was deciding between doing adult ER or pediatric ER, um, I knew very quickly that, um, you know, kids are just really fun. They're very resilient. Um, they tell it to you straight. They don't hold back, you know. <laughs> kids are very direct um, and fun loving. And so I always enjoyed working with kids. And um, in my eyes, especially when you give them proper care, you know, you, you can feel good about knowing that you're helping them towards living the rest of their life fully. And so it was very rewarding in that respect. So I knew very early on that I wanted to do pediatric emergency medicine, and then you know went about my training to, to um, go through those steps. But you were saying you didn't want a role where you would be on call. Isn't emergency medicine around the clock kind of thing? Yeah, but we, we do shift work. So you're correct. So from your standpoint as a patient, you go to the ER, the ER is always open. There's always going to be someone there. But from our side, the clinician side, we do shift work. So every hospital system is different. Some do eight-hour shifts, some do 10, some do 12s. And so um, we you know, have our certain days that we're working and 
it's pretty um, amenable to having flexibility in your schedule because once you punch in, you do your, you know, your shift and then you clock out and you're done. There's no, um, ideally, right, there's no patient care follow-up or having to call back patients and things like that. That's fascinating. So, okay, so you went into pediatric ER um, yes. medicine um, or emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing was that in Philadelphia where you were previous to South Florida? For medical school, I actually went up to Boston to Tufts University School of Medicine. So I was there um, for medical school and I actually did a joint program. They have a program where you can get your MBA in healthcare management as well. And so even when I was in medical school, um, I knew that I liked um, a few things in terms of just the business side of medicine. I always enjoyed trying to um, look at protocols and processes to make them more efficient while maintaining patient care. So that was kind of a knack that I was already uh, interested in. So I decided to do that joint program to obtain the MBA as well. And then when I was in medical school and decided to do pediatrics training, I thought, um, you know, I've been on the East Coast my whole life. Uh, one of my brothers lives out in California, outside of LA. And I figured, you know, let me just take a peek at what, you know, Cali has to offer. So um, I did some interviews and I decided to go to Children's Hospital Oakland. And so I flew, you know, moved cross country. Um, and that was a fantastic decision. There, it really um, kind of honed my interest in the pediatric ER because we would see a whole variety of cases um, in terms of even traumas and things like that, but also very interesting medical cases. So people with congenital um, disabilities or um, medical issues that they were born with. And we had all the specialty care on site so we could take care of both in terms of both the traumas and the medical stuff. And then also just your run of the mill, regular pediatric things that would bring you to the ER like you know, kids jumping on trampolines and breaking an arm, for example. So um, that training was very, uh, very robust. And I got to see a whole range of medical pathology. So I felt very well prepared um, to go into pediatric emergency medicine after my training in Oakland. And I went down to Houston to do my fellowship, as they call it, the subspecialty training for pediatric emergency medicine. Um, Never in a million years I thought would I live in Houston. I had never <laughs> lived in the South. Um, I really didn't know anybody there. But when I went to interview, one of my mentors in residency said, you know, you should really check it out. Um, Texas Children's is a fantastic facility. It's a level one trauma center. Um, they are the largest freestanding hospital, children's hospital, not only in the country, but in the world. We had a very um, busy, busy ER, very, very busy. But again, I was learning a lot, practicing my um, skill set and growing my skill set. And so after my time in Houston, I figured I, I would want to try to get back to the East Coast. And so my first job out of training was actually um, back in Delaware, um, closer to Philly um, at Nemours. And so I was there for about a year and a half, um, had a good time. And then this opportunity in Miami came up. And that's when I moved in February 2020 down to Miami. So I've been making my tour of the country, essentially. <laughs> oh, and I guess depending on how you look at it, you may have moved at just the right time before COVID and yes. all of that hit. And, right. Well, 
And uh, I got down, I, I believe it was the first week of February and you know did my orientation at the hospital and um you know had about two three weeks of normalcy and then everything <laughs> everything changed but as you mentioned it was um good in terms of allowing me to really get a sense of the state of pediatric er care in the community this was the first time i was working in a community hospital because prior to that all of my training had been in very academic settings. And so mm -hmm. you have specialists on site, you have a children's hospital. And so coming to Miami was the first time that I was actually in the community. It's not a children's hospital. So you have different challenges, right? These are people who aren't trained specifically in pediatrics. And so that's what really opened my eyes to, there's a big gap in terms of the care that a lot of kids are receiving when they mm -hmm. go to their neighborhood facilities. When you don't have pediatric specialists on site, uh, it, there's gonna be issues with uh, care in terms of recognizing certain diagnoses, working up certain diagnoses, having proper equipment, for example. Children come in all different shapes and sizes, so having properly sized equipment for them is really important. So things like that in terms of oversight and having proper instruments and tools to help you give the best care that really um, was highlighted for me when I came down to Miami because uh, it was the first time where I really saw that there's a big gap in this area. And a lot of people, unless you're right in the mix of being in the ER, most people don't know that. Um, they think that if you go to your run of the mill ER that you're gonna be seen uh, by a specialist who cares for kids, but um, that's just not the case. You're typically seen by um, an ER doctor who has some pediatric training, but does not have focused pediatric training like uh, I, I would in terms of my fellowship that's three years long. Pediatric residency is three years and an ER residency is three years. And typically most ER residencies, some are four, but they might spend 10 to 15% of their time focused on pediatrics, which is, you know, it's something, but certainly not a ton when you compare it to a pediatrician who's had three years and then gone on to do the fellowship training. So um, that's typically where the gap is and that they can you know, recognize um, big issues, but the nuance of caring for kids or different things, especially respiratory issues is often a challenge because um, that's typically what, what brings most kids in. I was at the Ultimate CEO Awards for the South Florida Business Journal where the CEO of Nicholas uh, Children's Hospital was being um, recognized. So when he had the opportunity to get up there and speak, I think he said, um, I mean, he wasn't working for the hospital at the time, but there was a situation with his daughter where she needed to go to the ER and he noticed some of those gaps that you mentioned um, and not having that care and not going to a children's hospital and the important need for that and right. then somehow all things aligned and he knew he had to be a part of it and went on to become ceo of nicholas children's hospital yeah um, it, it, yeah it's cases like that where unless you know it's someone you know or it happens to your child it, it's normal right you assume i'm going to a medical facility they're going to be able to handle this but the reality is, and this, I want to be very clear, I'm not bashing the ER doctors, it's simply they don't have the training, right? So it, it would just be as if someone approached me and said, hey, Dr. Arnold, can you perform you know, this cardiac surgery? No, because I'm not trained in it. 
unfortunately, the academic centers that you know we have around the country, which are very robust, they do great work. There isn't an easy way for that information to be translated to all of these community sites. And so the doctors and um, the physician assistants and nurse practitioners who are practicing in the community are often kind of very siloed and left on their own and aren't given the tools to excel in terms of the pediatric care. And so that's where our team comes in at Premier Pediatric Solutions to do that training, those clinical simulations with them to improve their medical knowledge, to make sure they have proper supplies on hand to care for the kids, and also just give them outlets for proper protocols that have been standardized so they can deliver better care, be more efficient, um, and also actually have cost savings. Like it's financially viable because you're seeing more patients, you're being more efficient with your care, and you're building skill sets for the clinicians you already have hired without having to hire on more staff. So it's kind of a win-win situation in terms of making sure that the children are receiving what they need medically and also being financially responsible for the medical institutions that, that we service. Wonderful. Now, this may seem like an obvious um, answer to this question, but for clarity for myself in the audience, when you say um, community centers or community sites, what exactly does that mean? Yes, good question. So I am talking about any facility outside of a large academic center. So that could be um, an urgent care, uh, that could be an ER. There are lots of freestanding ERs that you may encounter. That could be even just a small or medium-sized hospital that's an adult hospital. So anything that is not an academic pediatric hospital, those are the sites that I'm talking about. Typically, it, it depends, but if you think about urban centers um, that are more dense, it's usually not such a huge issue just because even if you are an adult hospital, odds are you might be very close to a children's hospital. So say maybe 10, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. If you run into a case that you're not comfortable with, then you can transfer that kid to that children's hospital. But when you're talking about urgent cares that have typically very limited um, medical capacity, so they might just have one practitioner who's working and also you know, they don't have um, proper equipment on hand, that's where they typically can run into issues. And then in suburban and more rural areas that have these urgent cares, ERs, um, small and medium hospitals, those typically can get into a lot of trouble because um, the most critical thing you learn in the ER is knowing who's sick and not sick. So if you are not as well-trained or comfortable with kids, you might have a child who's actually very sick that you don't recognize sitting in your facility and that's going to be to their detriment in terms of their medical care. Um, so you've really been in those urban centers um, that you're yeah. talking about with a seemingly or what I would assume is a lot of resources. So coming mm -hmm. down to Miami, I'm interested because I know you've identified some of those gaps and just understanding um, what you see might be different here and mm -hmm. what some of those needs are. Yes. Um, so definitely the vibe in Miami is different, as, as I'm <laughs> sure you can attest to. <laughs> um, so I would just say in Miami specifically, since there are so many um, competing private companies and smaller hospitals, um, you can have a whole lot of variation in terms of the care, even within, you know, 20, 30 minutes or an hour of, of mm -hmm. uh, location. And um, I think that's a little bit 
unique for this area just because, you know, it's a tourist destination. You have lots of people coming in and out. And um, sometimes it can be very challenging to kind of coordinate the care across multiple sites, especially since you have different um, companies that have competing interests um, in the greater South Florida region. So that can be very challenging for sure. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's something I've never thought about until I actually had to go to the ER when I fell off my roof and broke my wrist. So oh, and, no. <laughs> and ended up needing to get surgery. But yeah. after that experience, I was, you know, now I've done a full kind of inventory of like, take me to that hospital. Do not take me to that hospital. Yeah. And that's often the case because it's like, you know, thankfully if you're healthy, right, you don't have to interface with the healthcare system often. But once, once that happens, people are very in tune with, okay, what was the bedside manner of the clinician? Um, did they communicate well? You know, I always tell my friends and family, um, you have to be an advocate for yourself. And, it, and it's something that, Absolutely. you know, some people are um, better at than others, but I always just say, you know, ask questions, make sure you understand what's going on with your care, the plan of care, um, what are the risks and benefits of a certain procedure or medications, all of those things, and, and really hold the healthcare professionals accountable um, so that, it, it you know, it's, it's a dialogue. It should be a relationship that you build. Um, I certainly understand working in the ER. Um, it's very busy. It's very stressful. Um, a lot of the facilities are still very understaffed and we're stretched super thin, but mm -hmm. making sure that you can still communicate well with the patient is very, very important. And uh, as you mentioned, until something happens to you or someone you know, uh, it's hard for people to kind of appreciate that. And mm -hmm. that's why to me, this topic of pediatric care is so, so important because I don't want it to be a reactionary thing, like, oh, something mm. terrible happened at this urgent care. We need to do something. I just would like us to kind of bridge that medical gap. And that's what our group does to make sure that the care is elevated, that we standardize the care, have access to proper protocols so that every kid that comes in is getting what they need. And it, it shouldn't be an afterthought. It shouldn't be reactionary when something bad happens. Yeah, I love that message of it not being reactionary because it's often until something happens that you're like, hey, I need to do a little more homework or be, you know, educate myself a little bit more on, you know, the best types of care. I want to hear a little bit more from you when you mentioned how you're going in to, to standardize that level of care. Like, what does that look like? Absolutely. Um, where are you going in? Who are you working with? Yeah, so um, typically when you think about it, we focus on a few areas. One is the actual medical content in terms of the clinical knowledge around very common cases that you're going to see. So we've developed a suite of six clinical simulations. Um, one refers to asthma, for example, in terms of proper management, um, drownings, how to manage that, because obviously, especially in South Florida, um, there's tons of water around and bodies of water that kids can get into. The other is something very common like anaphylaxis, so severe life-threatening allergic reaction. So we, we've developed six different clinical scenarios that you're going to most likely encounter. And what we do is, is very pragmatic. First, we have to do a needs assessment, right? So every facility is different. Every facility has different capabilities and goals. 
And so when we're partnering with the client, first it's a discussion about what is the state of things currently, and then where do we need to improve on those deficits? We talk about the capabilities of the facility, doing a survey of where the clinicians feel their skill level is already with pediatrics and making sure that we have a baseline so that we can kind of do very concrete, measurable um, increments in terms of assessing um, where we need to go. So once we have that needs assessment, that baseline, uh, typically the biggest gap is, as I mentioned, the medical knowledge. And so depending on the size of the facility, the number of personnel they want to train, we have a simulation. And for our group, we've found that the ideal number of people participating at any one time is five. Five is a good number in terms of you still um, kind of get that more or less one-on-one um, teaching, but also it's a big enough group in terms of team dynamics, working on team dynamics to make sure that you're giving proper care. And it's not too big where someone might not be able or willing to speak up. So five is kind of the sweet spot that we found in terms of uh, that uh, team dynamic. What we do, so for example, again, I'll take asthma. We have a clinical case and we have the group work through very concrete steps as to what they're going to do for the management. So what questions do you need to be asking? What does the clinical exam look like for this patient? Um, making sure you have proper monitors, making sure you have proper medication dosing, all of that stuff we go through on the medical side. And then the other important component is communication. So as in medical terms, we'll say, okay, who is the team lead? Like who, who is going to be the manager essentially for this medical care team when we're taking care of this patient? So having clearly defined roles is critically important. And then closed loop communication. So if I'm the team lead, I'll say, you know, Sally, can you give a normal saline bolus? I have to be clear about, especially in kids, what that dose is, right? Because everything is weight-based in children. And then Sally's going to repeat back that dose to me to confirm that she's understood it and that it's the proper dosing. We're giving real-time feedback and kind of debriefing to make sure that the team members are understanding the medical care and why it's important. And so after we've done that run through, typically takes about an hour for the scenario, we break, do a, a large group debriefing to again, go over, it could be something even technical to say, okay, well, we didn't have the proper airway equipment. For example, if it's a baby who's coming in with a respiratory issue, you need to have properly sized equipment, for example. So getting into the nitty gritty in terms of the supplies, where the supplies are, things like that, we'll do in our debrief. And that usually takes 20 to 30 minutes, depending on um, the nature of the group. And then we will reset and then run through the scenario again for a second time. This time, certainly it should be more seamless. They should be more comfortable with the medical knowledge, but also the communication tactics that we spoke about and equipment issues, if there were any, on the first pass. And so that's usually, it takes about two to three hours to run through one clinical simulation. And based on the needs of the client, we will then regroup to either move on to a next clinical simulation, typically about one week apart, but always circle back and say, you know, simulation one was about asthma. Let's check in in two weeks to check your medical knowledge for the clinical simulation for asthma. 
So it's a very um, kind of precise way to do simulations and detail oriented, just because the medical knowledge is important to deliver, but also making sure that the communi communication is there and that they have the proper equipment and also importantly know when they're out of their depth. So say if it's an urgent care and the child is very, very sick, they might not have certain medications on hand. So they need to recognize this child is very, very sick. We need to initiate a transfer right away, for example. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, um, I know being passionate about health education um, mm -hmm. and specifically for children in high risk communities. Yeah. When you say high risk communities, tell me more about what that means. Yes. So typically it's any group that is socioeconomically vulnerable. So um, lower socioeconomic status um, across the country. Um, most people think about, you know, urban centers ha having these issues, but actually in, in doing this work and learning more about the region, especially the Southeast region. So um, those five states of Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, um, they, right, it's often issues in terms of the more rural communities as well. Um, and just because of access to care um, and affordability of care, it's a huge, huge issue. So those states actually have a very relatively um, high proportion of pediatric patients relative to the national average, but they also have the least amount of children's hospitals per state trying to partner with different schools and school districts to implement some of these health education programs is really, really important to me. So that even starting at a young age, you're building the health literacy in these kids so that they can be knowledgeable about their bodies and kind of become advocates as they're going through adolescence and young adulthood, as we mentioned, right? So when you can speak about these things, when you are seeking medical care and, and have some concept of, of what's going on on the clinical side in, in hospitals, I try to do as much teaching as possible in the ER setting. Often, you know, it's gonna be the parents, um, depending on the age of the child, but making sure that they understand the medical issue that brings the child in. So asthma is super common. I keep going back to this, but you would be surprised at how many people don't understand the basics of asthma and when they need to seek medical care. And something like that that is so ubiquitous I want to make sure that that's addressed because it's um, affecting you know tens of millions of kids and something in terms of with proper management they can have a happy and full life. You know? Not to jump in, but I, I will yeah. just say that um, in my own family, uh, my my cousin who was eight years old suddenly passed away due to breathing issues, and um, yeah. I can't help but think that if there was something else done prior. There was right. a breathing machine. There were, you know, other discussions around what maybe the issue was, but there was never mm -hmm. anything definitive that he wouldn't yeah. just drop dead one day. Right. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear that. It's, yeah. it's, you know, just like, you know, stories like that where you have to really make sure the families understand that your, you know, your child could die from this. And this is critically important to understand how to manage it how to recognize the symptoms of someone having issues breathing so that you can avoid them getting into a situation where, you know, it's literally life and death. And so um, that's really where we focus in terms of making sure they have resources to understand 
medically what's going on, plugging them in with primary care doctors. Often, uh, a lot of times, especially in more rural and suburban areas, there aren't primary care doctors that they have been connected with. So giving those resources, making them aware that there are specialists that they should see. So for example, with asthma, seeing a lung doctor, the pulmonologist is really important. And just trying to bridge that gap of, you know, we don't expect the families to know everything, but to at least be in tune with my child has this medical issue. Um, these are the concerning things about the medical issue that I should know to recognize and when and where to seek the proper care. Black kids have a seven times higher rate of mortality compared to white kids for asthma. And that gap is just unacceptable to me. So it's just, we really have to do better with education on all fronts, be it in the ER or their primary care doctor, and also at school, because those are kind of the major areas where um, the children will interface and make sure- And also how that... is it right reaching the right people too? Exactly, right. As a parent or a caregiver, take that initiative to know about your child's medical issues, hold your clinicians, the healthcare providers that you are seeing accountable to explaining things to you. Really, you know, to answer the question, it has to be more communication and um, just spreading the medical knowledge of diseases, um, resources to get help and, um, you know, making sure someone is plugged into the healthcare system. So it's, it's Black History Month um, at the time that we're airing this episode. And, um, you know, we're, it seems like we're always talking about these health disparities, whether it's COVID, it's breast cancer, it's mm-hmm. now pediatric, it's maternal health, right? Yes. It seems yes. like there are always these health disparities um, in Black and Brown communities. And just hearing that number that Black kids have seven times the mortality um, when it comes to asthma than white kids. Why is that? How much time do you have to make up? Um, <laughs> yeah, the, in, in my humble opinion, you know, I've, I'm now several years into my career um, and grew up in Philly um, and uh, certainly have seen the um, ramifications of poor healthcare access. I think it's multifactorial for one. Um, and it, I think it stems from a, f- a few a big, big categories. One, um, certainly the conditions that some kids are living in do not promote. Um, for example, we talk about asthma um, in terms of a healthy environment. So if you are in a place where you don't have access to open outdoor area to be active, to feel safe when you're outside, for example. A lot of times safety is an issue. I've spoken to kids where they're saying, um, no, I'm not going to play outside because there's gun violence or something. And then it comes down to, okay, as a parent, that's something you have to think about, right? What does the city look like? What is the structure of the city to provide safe, um, clean, healthy spaces for kids to be kids? The other component is just the access to care. So more and more, um, I mean, again, I could go on and on, but um, it has been shown like the number of people entering the medical field is decreasing while the demand is increasing. And so how do we approach that? Um, Certainly cost comes into play. Um, Higher education and certainly medical school is astronomically expensive. As, as a practicing physician, how do you then balance 
your own health and wellness. So avoiding burnout. How do these hospitals make sure that clinicians aren't burnt out? How are you supporting them in terms of mental health and making sure that they have the support to take a sick day if they need to? In terms of access from the patient side, a lot of people, right, you, you call a general pediatrician's office or whomever, and you want an appointment, it can be several months out. A lot of people aren't able to get into these hot, um, offices readily. And so how do we help offices and the clinicians expand their resources to service more patients is really important to think about. Um, what type of training needs to be done to help certain families, especially if there are issues with um, money and, and um, economic issues, like having more social workers and case managers and things like that to help navigate the system is really important. A lot of pediatrics is education and what we call anticipatory guidance. So speaking with the family about what's to come, what's to look out for. If you're told you have 10 minutes to do a well visit, that's simply not enough time. And so, you know, these And then the doctors that are spending those times are often saying, hey, yeah. this is like a self-pay. Right. <laughs> you know, exactly. we're not going through insurance because they want to be able to spend that time. I've come yeah. across that as well. Absolutely. So then it becomes that access it's, issue again because yeah. the cost is the barrier. Right. And so I, I think really the country, like on every, every level, has to recalibrate and say, what are we going to prioritize? Are we prioritizing the health? of the patients and the health of the clinicians who are giving this care, or is it just about dollars and cents? I think restructuring reimbursement and um, making sure that those types of, um, that, that type of programming is supported financially is really, uh, really important because if the patient doesn't know what's going on, if you're not communicating well, then they're going to be going to the ER, which is going to lead to higher costs, um, bottlenecks in the ER, et cetera, et cetera. And so it kind of, it's just a cycle of poor information, poor access, and you know, honestly, um, poor outcomes for the patient. So, And I would really, also think that if yeah. there are less physicians um, or people entering the workforce or you know into this, this field, that would also mean less physicians of diverse backgrounds, which means less representation. Yeah. Um, which Absolutely. is also important because having that representation in the, the medical field is key. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a great point you bring up because, you know, studies have shown that, right, we, people talk about the cultural competency. If a patient is not seeing a provider who looks like them, who has a similar background, who has similar experiences, number one, there's going to be a disconnect in terms of communication styles and understanding of what's going on. And then lack secondly, absolutely, lack of trust is a huge issue. So if I don't trust the person who's giving me medical advice, I'm not going to follow it. And you're going to get into issues that way. And so having a workforce that reflects the patient population is super, super important, especially when you're talking about medicine, because um, you know people are not going to follow their treatment plans. They're not going to understand what's going on. They're not going to understand the importance of their medical issues because they simply don't trust the provider or there's a, a cultural disconnect in terms of communication and, and things like that. I try, you know, I've done programming in like elementary schools, like the earlier the better because kids are formalizing these um, 
ideas of who they are, what they can become. And so the sooner the better will help them with that exposure to kind of really be in tune with, oh, I can be a doctor if I am interested, or I could be an engineer if I'm interested. And it makes a huge, huge difference as they go through their schooling to pursue those opportunities if they are exposed at a very young age. Absolutely. I know we're winding down to the end of our time. And lastly, I do want to ask how people can learn more about you, what you do, connect with you. So we make sure we can go ahead and add all of that below in the show notes. Yes, absolutely. So um, there are several ways you can connect. You can find me on LinkedIn, Alana J. Arnold. Um, That page has all of my contact information. You can also Find us on the web at premierpediatricsolutions.com. Our webpage has an easy chat feature where you can send us messaging directly and um, you can schedule an exploratory call um, if you have questions about the programming that we offer. We are typically looking for um, anyone who's in the health field, especially um, C-suite level CEOs, CMOs, who are interested in improving, in improving their pediatric care and also being financially viable. The work that we've done so far has um, shown that we've been able to increase revenue sevenfold for uh, facilities that have gone through our programming with the clinical simulations and also have increased twofold the level of clinical competency for their providers. So you can find me on LinkedIn or check out our website at premierpediatricsolutions.com. Just shoot us a, an email so we can set up a, uh, a call to, to discuss the needs of the client. Well, this has been wonderful, Dr. Arnold. Thank you so, so much for just all of your knowledge, your insight, and for sharing it in such a thorough and insightful way today. Thank you so much. It was my absolute pleasure. I'm very happy that I could join you today. It was was wonderful. I hope you learned a little something from that episode and also enjoyed it as much as I did. Dr. Arnold is certainly a wealth of knowledge, so make sure you go below in the show notes, find her information, and connect with her to learn more. And also, hey, connect with me if you haven't already, because you know what? I'd love to stay connected with me. you. You can find all of my information below in the show notes, but I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'd love it if you subscribe on YouTube because you know what? We come back every other week with new episodes and I'd hate for you to miss out. So until I see you back in two weeks, because I know I'll see you then, stay happy, stay healthy.